Well, welcome to day 21 of the feast. Uh, If you're new to chapel or don't know what I'm talking about, the feast is a 40-day Bible emphasis that we are doing together as a church, and I can't believe that we are over halfway through. And uh, we're going to continue on, and if you'd like to get on board with it, you can. Today's a great day to do that. There are Bible reading plans on the table in the back of the worship center that says welcome, and also the welcome center in the foyer. Grab one of those. Don't worry about making up for these last few weeks. Just get on board with today's passage today, tomorrow's passage tomorrow, and go from there. You'll see there's some different options you can choose of how much you want to try to read uh, per day, but you can get on board with that. That really is what this is about. At the heart of this is engaging with Scripture and strengthening and deepening a habit of spending time in God's Word. I just want to again say that if you've missed some days uh, as we've been going through, don't uh, get discouraged, don't give up, and don't feel like you've got to go and make up all that ground. Just get back on track today because this is about developing consistency and strengthening that habit. Also, we'll just say that if you need to um, change uh, the plan that you're on, uh, you can do that. If you realize, oh, I actually want to be reading a little more than I am, or actually I need to maybe back off to just do one chapter a day so I can do it consistently, uh, there's, you can do that. That's an option. Uh, do whatever's going to work uh, best for you to keep this habit going. Uh, one of the ways that we want to engage with Scripture when we're together on Sundays is to reflect on what we read the previous week, and we're having different people uh, help us with that as we go. This morning, I want to invite Tom Durston and Sidney Rodriguez to come and join us, and I actually need the mic back that, uh, that we had that's on the piano. Perfect. I told you my mic management is just off today, so it's a good thing we believe in grace, right? Awesome. All right. So Sidney will have you go first. Again, just asking them to share what's a way they heard the Lord speak, something that stood out to them, uh, something that they took away just from what we were reading this week. Hello again. Um, I read Psalm 22, which led me into Psalm 23. Um, and in my Bible, right here, I promise, uh, it says, where, where it says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I saw a note that I had written that says, but I do want. Um, I had just suffered a miscarriage after 15 months of trying, and which was then followed by several years of nothing and another loss, and it was a very frustrating time. Um, and I could just hear my sad voice in my head saying that. And it made me smile to see and notice everything that God has done since then. God is so good. Um, God gave me these two psalms together to convey this idea. Psalm 22 is the anguished prayer of a godly sufferer. David was under attack by people he didn't provoke. He didn't understand, and he was scared. But he never once said, I'm trying to follow you, but all these bad things are happening. I don't think you're great, and maybe we shouldn't be friends anymore. Um, He cries out to the Lord Um, instead, and in verse 3, he says, yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. Like he's saying, I know who you are, and um, so even though I don't know what's coming, I know that I can follow you. And then he hits us with Psalm 23, which is a joyful profession of trust in the Lord. I can't say that I was joyful um, at that time in my life, but I definitely trusted in him. Verse 4 says, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. For me, it's acknowledging that suffering will come. There are highs and lows for everyone. Sometimes the lows are so low, but he is steady. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's always good, even when our circumstances are not. Awesome. Thank you.
Tim told us first to uh, pick out um, something that, that we felt the Lord was speaking to us. <clears throat> so um, um, I was uh, going to talk about Psalm 119. And uh, the, the verse that really speaks to me most is verse 10, which says, I seek you with all my heart. And this is just the cry of my heart. I really love uh, Psalm 27 also, where David says, uh, says, my heart says, if you seek his face, your, your face, Lord, I will seek. And um, it's uh, just a, a, a real passion. And um, as I read through those verses in Psalm 119, there, there are some other things that, uh, curiously, they point me to Jesus. Because this song, Psalm, we don't know who the author is, but he speaks about uh, the Lord's law and his statutes and his precepts, um, fully obeyed, decrees, commands. And in the remainder of the psalm, he, he keeps uh, singing about how he loves the Lord's law. And, uh, but we have Jesus now, and, and Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. And it's, it's uh, that much sweeter and more powerful. Moses, uh, when they were in the wilderness, he'd go to the tent of meeting, but the rest of the people didn't, except for his young aide Joshua, who would go in the tent. And and even when, when Moses left the tent of meeting, Joshua would stay. And but um, so Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. He he fulfills and goes beyond the law. Uh, the, <clears throat> the law says, "Do not murder," and Jesus says, "Don't even call someone you fool." Uh, and Jesus said that He'd be with us always. Said, if you love me, obey my commands, and I'll be with you. My Father will love you. I will love you, and I'll we will live with you. So, uh, that's a, a, a precious completion of of the the love of the the word and the law. Um, and Tim also asked us to uh, think about what does this say about who God is, and what what does it tell us about who people are. So, it's interesting to me that that God uh, desires for us to seek him with all our heart. And, uh, you know, he's, he's immense. He's so powerful. He created the whole universe, all the galaxies, every molecule. But he considers us seeking him as, as one of his most valuable things. He's, mm-hmm. he's the loving father. He wants that relationship with us. And what it says about us, okay, well, uh, if, if God wants us to seek him with all of our heart, then, then all of <clears throat> all of our heart is of great value to him. You know, we can we can look at other people with greater gifts. You know, okay, we we don't have the gift that Tim has. We don't have the gift that this person has or that person has, but we have this. But we we have this gift to give him. Which is all of our heart, Amen. and then Tim asked us to consider. Okay, what does this say we should do? Well, we should seek Him with all of our heart, and the word in in there all it sets the bar very high. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Thanks, Sydney. Awesome. I just love hearing from different voices. God speaks to different people in different ways, and I just want us to hear how he's speaking through different people and the way different people think and look at Scripture. It's awesome. Uh, One of the things that we're doing as we go through is you can ask questions. 
Uh, my email is in the bulletin, and so if you have a question as you're doing your Bible reading, uh, shoot an email to me. I'll do my best to get your response, either back via email or talk about it on a Sunday morning, and so we, we can do that. Uh, as we go this morning, I want to talk about a couple themes that we see in the, the verses, that, the passages that we'll be reading this week. So, uh, Ian, I'm going to skip ahead uh, and talk about a couple of these themes. And one of them that we see is the theme of lament. Uh, we see lament a lot, especially in the Psalms and in the prophetic books. And um, there's actually a whole book called Lamentations, which is uh, Jeremiah lamenting over the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Uh, when laments are, <laughs> yeah, we're skipping ahead. There we go. Thanks. Uh, laments are expressions of grief, expressions of grief, disappointment, despair, or pain. And God included a lot of laments in Scripture. And he, the laments in Scripture are inspired as much as any other part of the Bible is inspired. The laments we read are as much the Word of God as the Ten Commandments or the Sermon on the Mount. And God included a lot of laments in Scripture. When we look at the book of Psalms, nearly a third of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. It's the biggest single category of type of psalm there is, Psalms of lament. And so it was important to God that these be included, that we understand how important lament is. We, it, it's good to see that laments are expressions of grief. Lamenting is different than just being sad. It's expressing that sadness. Now, this is something that when we suffer loss, we may be tempted not to do. Uh, we may have people around us urging us to just get over it. Uh, facing loss is painful. Grieving it is painful. And we like to avoid painful situations. So we might be tempted to just ignore it, stuff it, deny it. We might be tempted to deal with it in a very surface way and then just move on. We, we move on past it, but we've never really faced that pain. And when we lament, we face it full on. We express it. Now, some people, when they express this in their laments, they do so spontaneously in prayer to God or just with another person. And, and, and this is how some people lament. They say it. They cry it. They yell it. They just spontaneously verbalize, this is what happened and this is how it affected me. This is what I feel. When we're doing lamenting, this is not the kind of prayer that you pray quietly in your heart to the Lord. This is you saying it out loud to Him. And when we're, when we're lamenting, we're not filtering or, um, or managing what comes out. We're just letting the emotion flow. This is uh, why it's good to have a safe, trusted friend to do this with. Someone that's not going to clutch their pearls and swoon if you have expressed some strong emotion. And so we're, we're getting it out. Now, some people, they'll do this spontaneously. Other people, their expression is going to be written at first. And this is what we see modeled in Scripture, a lot of written lament. And the laments we see in Scripture are, are very intentional. They're still passionate. There's still emotion there. But they're structured. There's been thought that's put into them. The book of Lamentations, for example, each chapter in Lamentations is an acrostic poem. Each verse or series of verses starts with successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And there's a meter that's used all the way through Lamentations of three Hebrew words on the first line and two Hebrew words on the second. So it's this one, two, three, one, two. One, two, three, one, two. 
It gives us kind of a halting, limping feel to the book. Even the meter that Jeremiah is using as he writes it is expressing the loss that he feels when he thinks about Jerusalem and the temple. Now, if you write out a lament, it may not be like a great work of literature like that. You don't have to like meet that standard. But people have found that writing out lament helps them express more fully and more deeply the loss that they feel and the emotions associated with it. So if you write a lament, that's good, but I also encourage you to then read it aloud, again, before the Lord or with a, in the presence of a friend, because that just is a part of getting that grief up and out, verbalize it to the Lord. So lament is an, an, ex, is an expression of grief, and it includes God. Lamenting is different than just complaining or processing emotion. It's not just saying this happened and it was hard and I feel sad, I feel angry. It's, it's including the Lord in that conversation. Many laments in Scripture are addressed to God, and it's really striking how honest they are. Laments in Scripture are honest about feelings of blame. Look at Lamentations 3. He, this is God that Jeremiah is talking about, He has made my skin and flesh grow old and has broken my bones. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and hardship. He has made me dwell in darkness like those long dead. Laments are honest about feelings of abandonment and the absence, the seeming absence of God. The psalm that Sidney just referenced, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my quiet cries of anguish? My God, I cry out to you, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Laments are honest about the questions that come when we're in a painful time. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? So these, these laments include God and are very honest with the emotions that we feel when we're, when we're facing loss and grief. I think so much when we feel this, this pressure, this expectation that we've got to have it together, and maybe not just for other people, but even for God, here's something I always take comfort in. God knows how I feel whether I tell him or not. So if I tell him, at least then he's invited in to do something about it. And so that's what laments model for us. So laments are expressions of grief. They include God in the process. And as we think about lament, we have to appreciate the laments are good and healthy. That's why there's so many of them given as examples for us in Scripture. As you read this week and in in the future and you see these laments in Scripture, think about what need there may be to lament in your life. The only people who need to lament are people who have experienced loss. But that's all of us at different points in our life. And we might think of this as like, oh yeah, loss and grief, like when you lose a loved one to death. Absolutely lament that. But there's other losses that we will need to grieve in our lives. There's the the loss of a relationship, the loss of a job, the loss of a dream, the loss of a hoped-for future. These are all losses that we're meant to lament. It's for our health and for our good to do that. So again, as you're reading this week, think about what lament might I need to do How can I bring that before the Lord? How can I involve uh, others in that, friends in that? But how can I lament what I need to lament? Another uh, topic that I want us to think about, because we're going to be coming up to these passages, 
is just the message that we see. Oh, I did want to say this before we leave lament. As we think about lament, we can take comfort from Lamentations 3, 21 through 25. This is really in the heart of the whole book of Lamentations, and the heart of uh, this, this chapter is this expression of hope. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those who hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. Sometimes laments end just on a note of complaint to the Lord, but often in Scripture there is this kind of a turn that happens where the lamenter says, but I know that God is faithful. He has allowed me to be wounded, but he will heal me. I feel like he's absent, but I know that I'll enjoy his presence again. I'm being oppressed, but he is going to deliver me. I'm going through some bad stuff right now, but I know that God's good character remains. And so we take comfort in that even as we lament. So in this week and the coming week, we're going to be reading in the prophets. And I do want to say a word about the message that the prophets bring and point out some themes that we see in the, in the prophets as they speak the messages that God had given them to speak. I want to talk about what these themes are, what they meant for the ancient Israelites. And then I want to think about how we can respond to them as we read those passages even though we live in a very different time and situation than they did. But one of the themes that we see as you read in the prophets is that they will give reminders of Israel's unique identity, status, and purpose. And so there are times where God is reminding the people through the prophets, you are my chosen people. You are the ones with whom I've made a covenant. My presence dwells with you and among you. I've, I've created you to be a blessing to all nations of the earth. So there are these reminders that come to the people. But there's also a lot of accusation that comes through the prophets. I think I said a couple weeks ago that sometimes prophets function as God's prosecuting attorneys. Uh, God says through them, hey, you're not living up to the covenant that we made. You're not doing your part. You're not living in response the way that you committed to live in response to me. And so the prophets bring these accusations to the people of the ways they're not living up to those covenant obligations. And so we see, for example, the prophets confronting the people about idolatry. The Israelites really wavered in their faithfulness and in worship of God. They sometimes would worship God in ways and in places that were different than where God said and how God said they should worship Him. And so the prophets will confront that. The Israelites would also sometimes worship the Lord, but also worship other gods. And they'd worship Canaanite or Babylonian or other pagan gods. And so the prophets would come and confront that and say, no, remember the no other gods before me part. Uh, you're, you're falling short. The prophets would also confront the people's lack of trust in God. Now, idolatry was a part of that. The people were tempted to put their trust in other gods, not the Lord. But the people would also uh, try to politically maneuver so that they could align with stronger nations around them. They would try to find security and safety through political means and through military might instead of just trusting in the Lord. And so the Lord, through the prophets, confronts them in that and says, no, that's not where your safety is going to be found. It's only going to be found in me. The prophets also confront the people on their failure to follow God's commandments. 
The prophets confront the people about immorality of all sorts, ways that the people weren't following God's commandments. And the prophets also confront the injustices that were present in their society. They would say it is not right for the rich to oppress the poor. They would say it is not right for merchants to use dishonest business practices to cheat people and try to gain an advantage. The, the, the prophets would confront leaders, priests and kings and others, and say, look, you are abusing your power. You've been given this authority for the benefit of people, but you're using it to advance your own agenda, to look out for yourself, and that's wrong. So the prophets would bring these accusations. They confront the Israelites on their failure to follow God's commandments and live up to their part of the covenant. The prophets would also, along with that, bring warnings of judgment. So God's not going to let this sin go unanswered. He's, he's, he's threatening, he's warning that judgment is going to come if the people persist. And that if is a big part of the context for judgment. The hope was always that the people would repent at that threat of judgment and change, and then the judgment wouldn't be necessary. We see this actually happen in the book of Jonah, which is a little ironic because Jonah's not even sent to, to the Israelites. He's sent to the Assyrians. He goes to Nineveh and proclaims judgment and destruction is going to come, and the Ninevites say, well, we don't want that. We're going to change and repent. And that was always the intent with judgment, that it would lead to repentance. But the prophets are also honest about the fact that the people aren't going to repent, and so the judgment is going to come. So when you read the prophetic books, we hear this tension. On the one hand, prophets are saying, hey guys, come on, let's, this, we don't want this judgment to come. This is what's going to happen, so let's repent so we're, we, that doesn't happen. But at the same time, you hear the, judgment, the, the prophets saying, you're stiff-necked and you're rebellious and you're stubborn, stubborn, and because you're not going to change, the judgment is going to come. And, and just to be frank, there's a lot of judgment in the prophets. There's talk of judgment against the northern kingdom of Israel that would eventually be brought by Syria. There's talk of judgment against the southern kingdom of Judah that would eventually be brought by the Babylonians. There's proclamations of judgment against foreign nations as well. But as you're reading through all those warnings and threats of judgment, remember that all that comes in a larger redemptive context. The hope was always that the, the threat of judgment would lead to repentance. So we've got the reminders of Israel's identity. We've got the accusation. We've got the warning of judgment. We also see in the prophet's message the promise of restoration. So judgment was going to come, but after that, God would restore his people. God would restore the exiles to the land. God would restore the right worship of himself. He would restore his reign and rule over his people. And things were not going to be as they had been before. They were going to be even better. And the, the, uh, there was going to be a new covenant that God would make with his people. He'd relate to them in a new way. There'd be a new kind of king who would come the prophesied Messiah. And the prophets also look way ahead to the end of history when they would see even the heavens and the earth being restored. It talks about the heavens and the earth being made new, a restoration that's so full and complete it can only be described as a recreation of all there is. So this was the message that the prophets brought to the Israelites. As we read their message, how do we apply this to our lives? 
Well, first of all, when we see the Israelites reminded of their unique identity, we can be reminded of our identity. We can be reminded that God has chosen to have a relationship with us, that God has made a covenant through us, with us through Jesus, that, that God has put his spirit with us and in us, that God wants to use us to bless all nations of the earth and to take good news to the ends of the earth. And as we read those accusations that the prophets bring, we can take a careful look at our own lives as we recognize the seriousness of sin and the significance of God's holiness and justice. When we see the Israelites confronted for their idolatry, we can consider what is at the center of my life? What am I giving attention to? You know, your God is who or what you turn to when things are tough. So when you're hurting, when you're in need, when you're desperate, who or what do you turn to? Your God is who or what you're willing to sacrifice for. We don't sacrifice goats and grains today like the Israelites did, but what are you willing to sacrifice your time and your energy and your money for? That might be a God in your life. Now, hopefully the answers to these questions of where do we turn and who do we sacrifice for, hopefully the answer is the Lord, but there may be times when that's not the case and, we're, and we realize there's some other honest answer to those questions. Sometimes the things that we're tempted to turn to, the gods in our lives, are downright sinful things. Because sometimes we're looking to food to fill those needs, and we're guilty of gluttony. Sometimes we're looking to alcohol or drugs, and and that addiction has taken hold. Sometimes uh, we're looking at pornography, or we're engaged in sexual immorality, and the reality is those are our gods in those moments. Sometimes the things we turn to aren't necessarily wrong in and of themselves, they're just wrong if they've taken the place of God in our lives. So that could include work. That could include physical health and fitness and diet and exercise. That could include relationships. Those aren't wrong things. They're good in the right context, but they become a problem if we're trying to get from them what we can only get from God. If we're trying to get provision, protection, security from those things instead of God, then they become idols in our lives. We've got to repent of them and put God back on that throne at the center of our life. So when we hear the prophets bring uh, the accusations and, and, the, and to confront the people about their lack of trust in God, it's important for us to consider where our trust is placed. Who or what are we trusting in to feel okay about ourselves? Where is our security found? Now again, hopefully the answer is the Lord, but again, there's times where we're tempted to find security somewhere other than in God. We're tempted to find our security in the approval of others, that I'm okay if other people like me. We're tempted to find that security in money, the the money and the wealth that we have, or the money that we hope we would have. Sometimes we are tempted to find that security in our ability to perform, to keep up appearances, to uh, live up to other people's expectations. If we recognize that in our lives, again, it's a time to repent and realign and say, no, Lord, My safety, my security is found only in you. When we hear the prophets confronting the people about their their lack of obedience to God's commands, we should examine our own obedience. What's the state of obedience in our lives? Is there anything that God has prohibited that we're continuing to do? Is there anything that God's commanded us to do that we're avoiding or delaying doing? And again, we repent and realign. And when we see the prophets confronting injustice in their society, 
that should prompt us to take a close look at our society, at our role in it, and think about how we can work for justice. If it was wrong back then for the rich to oppress the poor, why wouldn't it still be wrong today? If dishonest business practices were condemned by the prophets, why would we not condemn dishonest business practices? And if it was wrong back then for people with wealth and social status to abuse their position and privilege to take advantage of others, why would that abuse not be wrong today? Why would we fail to confront these injustices when we see them in our society? The the message of the prophet still applies to us. What Micah said, that we are to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God, that still applies for us, and it still applies in 21st century America as much as it did in ancient Israel. Now, we can have some conversations about how we're going we're to pursue that. We can have conversations about the best way to resolve inequities and injustices. We can talk about the pros and cons of whether government should be more or less involved in trying to do that. We can recognize that just the, the differences between an ancient agrarian monarchy and a modern technological democracy. So we have some conversations about the how we do it, but the what is not up for debate. The message of the prophets still applies for us to work for justice. What about the passages that are warning of judgment? What do we do with those? Well, um, yeah, we need to be reminded about how very, very seriously God takes sin. And when we read those passages that warn of judgment, we should be sobered by them But we don't need to have an unreasonable fear develop in us when we read them. In fact, as we read those passages, worship and gratitude can rise up in us as we recognize that because of Jesus, we don't face that same judgment. This is one of my takeaways from reading the Old Testament, and especially all those judgment passages, that I say, thank you, Jesus, for what you did on the cross. What we just celebrated in communion, it's not just nice or helpful or convenient. It is of mind-blowing cosmic significance that Jesus took the punishment that my sins deserve so that I will not face judgment like Israel and Judah did. That, that, That Jesus bore my sins on the cross. We have sinned, and the wages of sin is death. But because of Jesus, we have crossed over from death to life. We have done shameful things that we should be ashamed of, but there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when we read those judgment passages, be sobered by them, but also be grateful to Jesus for what he's done for us. And what about the promises of restoration? When we read those passages, we we recognize that some of those promises have been fulfilled in history. And we can look back and read with worship and gratitude as we see that God did restore the exiles to the land and God did renew right worship of him. We're reminded that God is faithful, that he keeps his promises. And we see that some of those promises of restoration were fulfilled in Jesus. We see that unto us a child was given, unto us a son was born, and the government of God is upon his shoulders, and he is our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, a prince of peace, the one who revealed the everlasting Father to us. We see that Jesus is the suffering servant who was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. And so we celebrate all that's possible because of Jesus. Because of Jesus, we experience what the prophets only look forward to and dreamed of, that we can relate to God directly, 
that the presence of God is within us. The Spirit of God anoints us and is upon us. So what they looked forward to, we experience. What they prophesied, we participate in. And so we celebrate the ways that God has fulfilled those promises of restoration. Yet as we read the prophets, we will see that there is still a restoration yet to come. Because while the kingdom of God has come, has come, it has not yet come fully. It's not yet fully experienced in our lives and in this world. We still await the final victory of God over sin and evil and evildoers. We still await the final judgment of God when all injustices will be addressed and all wrongs will be made right. And so we join the prophets in that longing and anticipation for the great and glorious day of the Lord. We look forward to the day when there will be a new heavens and a new earth and a restoration so complete it can only be described as a recreation of all God made and all He intends it to be. So as we come to Scripture this week, friends, I am encouraging us to take seriously the lament passages, to not skip past those or not just get bummed out by them, but to contemplate what are the ways that I might need to lament? Are there losses that are ungrieved in my life? Do I need to follow the example of Psalm 22 and Lamentations 3 and all the others and find a way to express that to the Lord, either in prayer to Him, in conversation with a friend, writing it out, whatever it is, take lament seriously. And also, as we read the prophets, may we be encouraged, may we be strengthened, may we be convicted, may we be grateful, and may we be expectant of the good future that's yet to come. Amen? Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me? I want to pray for us, and I'm going to bless us as we go from this time today. Lord, we do thank you for all that we've gotten to do as we've been together this morning. Thank you for drawing us in in worship. We thank you for the gift of music and the lyrics that allow us to express to you our hearts. Lord, we haven't forgotten that we said yes to you a bunch of times this morning, and we're going to keep saying yes a bunch of times as we go throughout this day and this week. We thank you, Lord, for communion and the reminder of all that you did for us. Thank you, Jesus, that we don't have to face judgment because you took our punishment for us. We, we are grateful for this monthly opportunity to be reminded of that. We thank you, Lord, for the kids that we dedicated and what they represent as all the children and youth that you have entrusted us with as a church family. Lord, we just, again, pray blessing on the next generation that they would go beyond us in their fervency of devotion for you, their knowledge of you, their anointing. Oh, Lord, thank you for them. And as we look at your word, Lord, we pray that you would continue to speak to us by your spirit through your word. Give us eyes to see you more clearly. Give us ears to hear you more clearly. Open our minds to understand all that you want to speak to us through your word. Lord, quicken our hearts that we would respond and be doers of your word, not just hearers, we pray. So thank you, Lord. And as we go into this week, Lord, continue to speak to us and continue to be with us. Chapel family, I bless you as we go from this time. In the name of Jesus, I bless you with sensitive eyes and ears to see and hear all that God does want to speak to you. I bless you with perseverance and tenacity as you continue in Scripture, as you develop this habit. And I bless you with a fruitfulness that comes as you invest effort to sink deep roots deeply into God's Word, that you would be like that tree planted by streams of water that we read about in Psalm 1, that bears its fruit in season, whose leaf never withers, that you would flourish because you're putting down deep roots in God's word. 
I bless you, that just as it is raining these days in the natural, that you would receive the nourishing rain of God's presence and provision in your life, that his spirit would, his spirit would fall upon you as the rain that our, our parched lives so desperately need. So Chapel family, as we go from this place, we are blessed in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 God bless you.